Over the last couple of classes, we've come to hopefully uh, appreciate a little bit more about the wonderful character and the faith of Martha. Um, you will remember that Martha was a sister whose service and dedication and trust in her Lord was beyond reproach and undeniable. You'll remember as we looked in her, as we looked at her both with the Lord in Luke chapter 10 and here in John chapter 11, we found she's a woman of strong conviction. And we found that her trust in the Lord never wavered, even under immense pressure and trial, but whose natural character sympathy was to see the way she could help her Lord through service. She was the one that always saw the jobs that needed to be done, the work that needed to be completed, and, and saw all of the, all the things that were in front of her that many didn't see, but who as a character had to learn that not everyone was like her and that other priorities might exist. But what we found in John chapter 11 is, is that whilst that was a challenge for her in Luke chapter 10, it was also a strength for her in John chapter 11 because we saw that this practical outlook was actually a pillar for strength for her in her trials as she tried to grapple with why the Lord hadn't come to save his, her brother who was now dead. And that external view actually acted as a pillar of strength for her to be able to work through a process of understanding. You see, while she didn't understand why the Lord hadn't come, her faith and conviction in her Lord never wavered. And what that did is it allowed the Lord to stretch her conviction and her understanding of his role as the Son of God to understand that he was the resurrection and the life that he would come to raise the dead as well as save those that were alive, so both save her and her brother if they only would but believe on him and hearken to his voice. And so whilst Martha's external outlook on service was a great challenge for her to overcome, it also provided a great strength for her to be able to maintain an external view and an outlook, even as she tried to internalize and rationalize all that was happening around her and the way that the Lord was working with her. So that was what we came to appreciate about, hopefully, well, hopefully that was clear enough, <laughs> about Martha. So what about Mary? Well, for Mary, well, we're talking about a totally different person. And Mary, whilst related by blood, was emotionally and characteristically different to Mary. You see, whilst, I'll turn this on, whilst Martha showed her dedication to her Lord in service, Mary was going to show her dedication to her Lord in her devotion to him. You see, whilst Martha maintained an external view of life, in service, Mary, not quite so much. You see, for Mary, she was quite different. And tonight, what we want to do is we want to look at the two, from the two incidents we've already looked at, in Luke chapter 10 and Luke and John chapter 11, to show a very different person to Martha. One whose devotional and emotional disposition to her Lord was an asset, no, no difference to Martha, her devotional and emotional disposition was an asset to her, but was also a liability. Her greatest strength for Mary was also her greatest weakness. And in the next two classes, I want to briefly explore, firstly, her challenge, that as the result of her outlook and focus on life, she couldn't get past certain things and broke down entirely. But what I want to show is, is that, that in our last class, which will be next week, same time, will be will actually show that how this weakness for her was also one of the greatest things that enabled her to understand about her Lord because she could think in a way that was so unique. So her greatest strength was her greatest weakness. You see, this, this weakness of her in terms, in terms of her internalizing and focusing inside is going to enable Mary to see things that no other disciple on the planet could see. 
You see, was the only disciple of the Lord to actually understand that he was ready to die and that he was about to die. And that because she had a view and a focus that was such that she was the most insightful of all of Christ's disciples. Why? Because she felt things deeply. She felt things personally. She felt things highly emotionally. And so as, as she held on to every word of the Lord, she stored up everything he said in her heart, and she soaked up his message. And as we begin to consider Mary, we'll start to see this highly emotional person unfold before us and to show both her weakness and her strength. So as we begin to consider Mary, we first meet her in Luke chapter 10 in a very particular position. Where was Mary when we find her introduced into the story in Luke chapter 10? Well, no surprises. We've already been there and looked at it. Everyone knows the story. We find that Mary was at the feet of the Lord. And do you know what's remarkable is almost every time we meet Mary, we find her, as the record paints her, as a disciple that was at Jesus' feet. Almost every time we meet her, she's at his feet. You say, Luke chapter 10 and verse 39, it says, And she, Martha, had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. She sat at Jesus' feet and absorbed his message as a servant. And almost every time we find Mary, we find her at Jesus' feet. Luke chapter 10, verse 39, John chapter 11 and verse 32, that when Mary was come, where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell down, it says, at his feet. And then the next story in John chapter 12 and verse 3, she's there in the Lord, with the Lord, anointing the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. And so when we come to Mary, we find the record paints this picture of this woman who was a disciple of Jesus' feet. And you'll remember when we looked at the concept of what this really means, this, this was the role of a disciple, a follower. Remember, it was the comment that's used of legion, sitting in his right mind at the feet of the Lord. It's the word that's used of Paul, the apostle, as he was, or Saul of Tarsus, who was at the feet of Gamaliel. It was this teacher and, and master and servant, master and teacher and listener and scholar relationship that is existing. And here is Mary at the feet of Jesus. She is the disciple of Jesus' feet. And you know what's remarkable, brothers and sisters and young people, is, is that the only time we ever find Mary struggling, as we'll see tonight in John chapter 11, is the time she's not at Jesus' feet and not listening to his words. In fact, when we find her, she's sitting still in her house, not going to see that Jesus, when he came. It's remarkable, isn't it? Why is that? And we'll have a look at that. So she's the disciple of Jesus' feet. The feet of someone was the hallmark. If you sat at the feet of someone, you were an eager disciple. And you see, Mary had this respectable, uh, respectful diligence in seeking to learn all from her master and to absorb all his teachings. And so here at the feet of the master, Mary would be found. Here her love for a Lord was maintained. Here her soul was fed. Here her faith was renewed and invigorated at the, at the feet of the master. But not being there, brothers and sisters, Mary felt exposed. Mary felt alone, felt insecure, because without her Lord and in times of trial, she struggled. So as we seek to explore the, the character of Mary, we'll start to see a highly emotional disciple who at the feet of Jesus having and holding on to every word and every lesson and every exhortation that Jesus spake, she listened intently to what his message was. She was a disciple who would feel things immensely, who would show her devotion and her love to her Lord by listening eagerly, attentively, emotionally, trying to understand everything that he said. And we find, if given a chance, Mary would always be at his feet every time. She felt that listening and understanding Jesus would take precedent over service every time. It wasn't an option. She naturally saw faith as more important in 
understanding things than doing things. You see, she would seek naturally to be fed rather to be, sorry, she would seek naturally to be fed rather than to feed. And as such, she would internalize things. She would intellectualize things. She was fed intellectually and would feel things emotionally. And she had an insatiable appetite for spiritual nourishment. But I just want to make a comment about spiritual things. Because by being this way, Mary was not more spiritual than Martha. And I think sometimes we can make this mistake. Because she's an intellectual person who loved to intelligently interrogate the words of the Lord and to understand his message, some might make the mistake of thinking that she's more spiritual than Martha. But as we've seen, Martha had an incredible faith. She was an amazingly spiritual person. And Mary was spiritual too, but just in a different way. You see, Mary was an intellectually fed person who felt things emotionally and internally and was fed spiritually by the words that Jesus spake. Whereas Martha was a service-fed person who gave and sacrificed physically and was fed spiritually by serving others because of an appreciation of what her Lord had given her. And the point I'm wanting to make is that both of these people, both of these beautiful sisters, were incredibly spiritual people, but in their own individual way. And by the way, I say that because I think many Martha types I know feel far less spiritual than their Mary counterparts, as well, they feel they can't maintain the intellectual discussion that often can occur. They may feel unable to contribute, choosing instead to sacrifice and to serve. And I just want to make the point that I, that when we come to examine the scriptures and we come to see these two women, we find that spirituality is not going to be measured or assessed by intellectualism. It's not measured by, measured by what we may know or the word that they may speak, but spirituality is measured by a relationship that we have both with our father and the way that we interact with each other. I think sometimes intellectualism is often mistaken as spirituality, and it's not. Spirituality is not measured by IQ, but by EQ. It's not all about intellectualism, but can only be measured by our relationship and appreciation for what God has done for us and how much we show that to each other. And so that said, as we consider Mary and as we consider her weakness, we see she is an incredibly spiritual person, but one who internalized and intellectualized internally and who thought deeply on Jesus' words. But for Mary, this was one of her greatest strengths, but also her weakness. So as in Luke 10, we've already seen that Christ perhaps understood Mary's need. You remember how Christ pulled Martha up. You can't prioritize your service things that you think are most important now and place that prioritization on Mary. Why? Because the Lord knew what was about to unfold in the story of John chapter 11. Her brother was about to die. Both of their brother, well, they were sisters, right? So Lazarus is their brother. So Lazarus is about to die. And they were both going to have challenges. They were both going to have to work things through. But the Lord Jesus Christ knew that if Mary was prioritized to serve in the kitchen, she may deeply lose all of her faith in John chapter 11. And I think the Lord knew that, which is why he tried to call Martha out on that occasion to say, careful, you have no idea about the needs of your sister. And I think the Lord knew what Mary's need was, the need to be fed, the need to be encouraged by his words. She needed to be exhorted and encouraged so that she might be able to bear the trials and challenges that lay ahead as Lazarus fell sick. And so now, in a matter of weeks, Lazarus is on his deathbed. And Lazarus deteriorates quickly. And we've already looked at the story. We looked at this in a fortnight ago. But just let's recap. Because consider the things now from Mary's perspective. You know, you will recall that Lazarus must have gone down very, very quickly once he got sick. 
And Mary and Martha would have discussed their situation and what they were going to do about it. And they both decided to send a message to Jesus to let him know of their plight. And we saw there was no presumption on their request, no desire for what they wanted. They decided to leave it to Jesus to decide on the best course of action. You remember that? They just sent him a simple message in John chapter 11, verse 3. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, him whom thou lovest is sick. There was no request for action. It was just an unspoken request to do something about it. because they thought that Jesus would know best. But I remember, as the messenger departed, Lazarus's situation obviously deteriorated very quickly and he died. And you remember that we're almost certain from the record that Jesus, uh, that Lazarus died before Mary and Martha had received Jesus's message in return. Because the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter four and verse four says that Jesus heard this. He said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And we know that by the time we piece the story together, and for Lazarus to be dead for four days, that it's likely that he would have died after the message was sent and before Jesus' message is returned, sometime on day one. And, you know, this is the message the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to draw Martha back to that message when he said, I told you all along that all of this was for the glory of God, so you should understand this. And so as they waited for the Lord, their beloved brother passed away. But it's quite curious to note, brothers and sisters, in the way that John writes the story and setting up the narrative of the story, don't you think? I don't know if you'd noticed it, but in John chapter 11, when we read that two weeks ago, you'll notice that there are two things from verse 1 and 2 that are interesting in the connection, now thinking of Mary. And I want to notice those two things. Come back and look in verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus. Of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. You know what's interesting is that Mary comes first in the story. And that's interesting, isn't it, in the context of what we looked at in our first study, that probably Martha was the older of the two. And yet John, in his record, wants us to highlight the fact that, well, it's the town of Mary and her sister Martha. What we also remember is, is that actually the house that, was, that they were staying in was actually belonged to, Mar to Martha, who was likely the widow of Simon. And yet here John wants to introduce us first to Mary. Why? And I think the answer to this lies in verse 2. The answer was because Mary is going to do something extraordinary. But the story of what Mary does that's extraordinary is actually in John chapter 12. So what we have to do, brothers and sisters, is we have to read John chapter 11 in the context of what's going to happen in John chapter 12. And that's what John is wanting us to understand, that Mary is going to do something because of what happens in this chapter. And John wants to show us that this is the wonderful Mary who was going yet to do something that hasn't happened, but she wants you to understand her relationship both to her sister, verse 1, and her brother, verse 2. You see, she's the one that feels this immensely on the basis of relationship. You see, of the two, Mary's relationship and the intensity of her emotional connection to these two siblings is going to be stretched to breaking point and I think is snaps in the story. And yet John wants us to understand and to be careful that we don't talk about Mary's weakness without seeing her strength of John chapter 12. 
Because although she goes to pieces in John chapter 11, she bounces back with such spiritual insight and perspective to silence all of her critics. And I think the other thing that's fascinating to notice is John, of all of the Lord's disciples, would probably understand this one the best. Because John was no doubt very similar. He himself had a very similar, I believe, disposition to Mary, who felt things intensely and who had to learn. But also, as a result of that intensity, also was the most insightful. So I just think that's interesting. And we'll come back to that in John chapter 12 when we look at that next week. But so, so all of this is to be read in the connection of what Mary is going to do. And she's going to be motivated because of the story to do something amazing for her Lord. But that's next week. So not this week. So what, is, what does she fall apart on? What, what, does, what is the issue that, that, Mark, that Mary has to deal with? Well, so Mary and Martha's brother die. And the funeral is done. And still, the Lord hasn't arrived. Think about yourself now in Mary's shoes. What was Mary to make of all this? How might one like Mary, who's devoted her existence to learn at the Lord's feet and to interpret all of this kind perceived indifference from her Lord, how is she going to understand the fact that he hadn't come? Why hadn't he come? What had been more important to the Lord that would mean he hadn't come to heal the one he loved? Mary's the one of relationships. And the question for Mary in all of this is, did he not love them? That's what the John has picked up, isn't it, in, in verse 5 of John chapter 11. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He said this was the challenge that Mary is going to try to grapple with in the story was, well, perhaps he didn't love them in the way that she thought he did. And of course he did. John 5, John 11 verse 5 tells us he did, but well, Mary's going to question this. You see, on this occasion, as Jesus comes in verse 17, where does he find them? Well, he finds, well, finds the two women in an entirely different frame of mind. You see, they, they were both grieving in an entirely different way. They were both processing the turn of events very differently. You see, both had endured loss. Both were grieving. Both, by the way, say exactly the same thing. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you've got colouring in pencil, colour them in. Because in verse 21, the Lord said, or Martha says to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. So that's verse 21. That's what Martha says. What about Mary? Well, have a look what Mary says in verse 32. Then when Mary was come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell, fell, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Exactly the same words in the Greek. No difference. That was the agreed message. They both felt this way. But whilst they were said the same thing. They were processing, I believe, different things very, very differently. One was processing externally as she grappled with why the Lord was doing what he was doing. She was going to try and understand and rationalize. Martha's going to try and rationalize and understand what the purpose of Christ was in allowing Lazarus to die. Martha's whole thinking was to try and understand why the Lord hadn't come and what his purpose was. But that wasn't Mary's. Whilst Mary says exactly the same thing, the other, Mary, was grieving internally as she tries to understand and rationalize why the Lord hadn't come because she was trying to understand why she hadn't come to save her brother. One was questioning his purpose. And the other is questioning his love. They both make the same comments, but they were processing things entirely differently. And here's the proof, brothers and sisters. Look at what happens when Jesus arrives in Bethany. 
Look at what their response was. As soon as he comes in verse 17, when Jesus came, Mary gets up and runs to her Lord. Jesus comes and finds Lazarus had been laying in the grave for four days. Verse 19, and many of the Jews had come to mourn with Martha and Mary to provide comfort to them concerning their brother. Everyone was there to support them except the person that they both wanted to be there. That's the Lord. But when he does arrive, Mary and Martha react in an entirely different way. Verse 20, then Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met him. You see, Martha's response was instantaneous. She had to understand what had happened. She had to understand why he hadn't come. And she needed to hear it from him straight away to understand what he was all about. But Mary, not so much. Mary, it says, verse 20, sat still in the house. Isn't it remarkable? A different reaction to when the Lord arrives. One bolts out the door, runs to meet him before he's even arrived. The other sits motionless, lost in her grief, unmoved by the Lord's news of his impending arrival. It's remarkable, isn't it? Did Mary not hear that the Lord was coming? Well, the answer is yes, she did. I think that's the word, that's the point of the word, but. Then Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. She absolutely heard, but remained seated in the house, unmoved by the news of his arrival. Why, brothers and sisters, does Mary not move? Well, I think the answer to that, brothers and sisters, is that she was lost in her own grief. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that when you look at people in the scripture overcome by excessive grief, we find them sitting, emotionally broken, utterly shattered because of the events that had transpired around them. In Job, we find him in Job chapter 2, he sat after he lost everything. Ezra, in chapter 9, when he, he, we find him, he sat down after hearing the transgression of God's people, utterly distressed by their state of, of, of wickedness. Nehemiah chapter 1, when, he hears, he, when Nehemiah hears the state of the city and its chaos and, and ruin, it says he sat and wept. And the nation of Israel in Isaiah 47 are told by the prophet to sit in dust to grieve the loss of their estate. You know, when we find people sitting and weeping, we find them overcome by intense emotion and grief, shattered by what's occurred. And I think, brothers and sisters, her grief, Mary's grief was such that she was powerless to move. Lost in a world of pain and utter anguish and grief as it had closed around her like a suffocating blanket. And as she endeavoured to process all of her thoughts and feelings about her Lord's love or the lack thereof for her and her family and her position, she was powerless to do anything. It was a suffocating and stifling grief from which for Mary there was no apparent relief. Lost in a world of pain. She was enduring her trial alone in the house, not at the tomb, because she couldn't fathom the thought that her brother had died because her Lord no longer loved her. Why hadn't he come? If he had of, her brother would not be dead. You know, the reaction of these two is reflective of the way in which trials are processed and endured by these two very particular characteristic types, aren't they, brothers and sisters? You see, for Martha, there is often an active response in trial. They have to do something, and it requires an external processing. These are the sort of people that like to talk about the challenge that they have and they like to try and understand the purpose of their trial. And so they do that by having conversations and interactions with others 
a lot of dialogue and, and confrontation as they try and understand. And for, for these types of people, for Martha types of people, it's often quick. It's often intensive. It's externally manifested and seen by their um, conversations with others. And it's often resolved or at least helped through having relationships with others. That's the Martha conversation, people, when they deal with trial. But perhaps not so much when we think about Mary. You see, because Mary people, perhaps there's a little bit more of a passive response as they take time to internally process what's going on in quiet reflection away from everybody else to try and understand the purpose of their trial. And from Mary, particularly in this story, and perhaps more, more I'm, I'm certainly not sort of a Mary type, but my understanding of this is, is that these sorts of people tend to be people that avoid conversation in those times of intense feelings. They internalize their thoughts. They're much more emotionally anxious about the way that they think about their challenges and are often in tears in their own world to deal with those problems. Often it takes longer. And often it's felt much more intensively, although not expressed outwardly. You know, and for these people, their trials are often resolved by resolution and surrender as they come to understand themselves in the way that they feel, in the way their trials are outworking. And so there's some lessons when we think about understanding how these two types of people work together in dealing with challenges and grief. You see, for Martha, Martha people have to understand that Marys don't often want to talk openly about their problems and certainly not in public. And their feelings, Mary's feelings, are filled much more intensively and emotionally and often Marys need more time. They need to take time. And, and, and the process to work through things is an internal one. And so Martha's, who type, type to be sort of solution-oriented and conversational, and let's talk about it, have to realise that actually we need to back off a little. You know, we, Martha's tend to be solution-oriented, practically-minded, action people. And those sort of people can trample, trample over and not understand sometimes the emotional needs and the space that might be required for a Mary to endure the challenge and the trial. We've got to give them space, Martha Tops, to process and to support them in their grief. And you know, sometimes the most beneficial thing you can do is nothing other than tell them that you love them. And often it requires us, as we'll see, the Lord's response. It's to grieve with them in their grief and empathize with them in their emotional needs. And of course, for the Marys who might be lost in emotional grief, as you process it, that, the, the real secret is to ensure you don't become lost in that sense of helplessness and lost in your world of grief. You know, it's so easy to let emotions get run away, run away with you and not see the Lord who is there who is waiting to help you, to assist you. And Martha's also that are deeply interested in trying to care for you. And you see, for Mary's, it's so important to always step back and always remember somehow in all of this that God has a plan and he's got a purpose and he's outworking this. Your plight is not unknown. Your state not unrecoverable. Because God is nigh, says Psalm, 70, uh, Psalm 34, verse 18, unto all them that are of a broken heart and that saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 34, verse 18. 18. And so the key for Mary is to not let um, um, emotional processing turn into a state of depression and helplessness, even when you don't know why. And to trust that God is in control and that he's working with you, both to will and to do his good pleasure, and to hold on and to look out for Christ and seek his presence and his reassurance. You see, that's the secret. And when Martha's are interested in your trials, to ensure them that you need space, tell them, be communicative, and let them know. Because they only care 
for your state. So Martha holds a private audience with Christ. We looked at that in our last session and demonstrates her remarkable faith and her trust in her Lord. And then after this, we see in verse 28, it says, And when she had so said, when she had said, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, which had come into the world, a statement of incredible faith. When she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly. Notice that. Privately. Isn't that remarkable? You see, Martha understood her sister. And so she comes and she approaches Mary privately to let her know that the Lord was asking to see him. And once again, we see her, the, the emotional maturity and sensitivity of Martha. She knew Mary was struggling. She knew that Martha, Mary wasn't coping. And so instead of bolting into the room in front of all of them who'd come to help her mourn, she calls Mary aside, whispers in her ear, the master is come and calleth for thee. So there's another major lesson for Martha's, isn't it? When dealing with emotional Marys. We have to treat with care and love and sensitivity, especially when we're dealing with people in moments of grief. Privately in care can often provide the right tone, the right environment to enable Marys to process what's being said without the fear of public shame and judgment and ridicule. And look at Mary's response. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Isn't that remarkable? As soon as she heard that the master is come and calleth for thee, she's instantly there. She wants to know what the Lord has to say. It's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus doesn't come to her. She waits out, he waits outside. Because that's what it says in verse 13. Now, Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. She, he waits. He was coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet after he meets Martha, he sends Martha to relay our message to come, for Mary to come to him. Why? Why does, does Jesus make Mary come to him? What's interesting, you see, that was one of the things that Jesus often did to help people. It was often a practice of the Lord to ask people to come to him. We find it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. When he was set, his disciples had to come up the mountain to him. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 49, in blind Bartimaeus, it says that Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. It's the same with the woman of Samaria. I only just picked a few just to start um, before I ever exhausted the list. But John chapter 4, verse 30, all of those of Samaria, they went out unto him out of the city and came unto him. You see, Jesus often stopped and required people to come to him. And he did that with Mary. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons. Firstly, I think it's to help maintain the privacy of the conversation away from others who don't need to be there or choose to be part of that conversation. The Lord could do that when he was working one-on-one -on -one with people. But I think the other reason why the Lord often did it was to change the environment that sat around them, to reset their mindset. You see, if, if, if Martha in Luke 10 was cumbered about and lost in her own mindset in the kitchen, Mary was lost in her own emotions, stuck inside the house in her own world. And I think the Lord wanted and still wants us to change our mindset and our frame of focus, instead of being full of ourselves, to come and focus un, unto him and to um, God's purpose and his will, that we might learn of him away from ourselves and our own environment. And the Mary here is being forced by the Lord to remove herself from the prison of self-pity and self-orientedness, to try and understand a wider purpose than Mary's own personal world. By the way, that's another good practical lesson, isn't it? For Mary's and Martha's. That when we find ourselves struggling with ourselves, stuck in our own head, thinking about life being unfair, things seeming unbalanced, that God doesn't care anymore, we have to stop. We have to consider things from an alternative frame of reference. 
and ask the question, why do we feel this way? Am I actually just caught up in my own head? Am I being selfish? How much have I given to my brothers and sisters? Can I give more? Or have I withdrawn, concerned about myself only in myself and becoming selfish? You see, we often can have feelings of resentfulness or unfairness or indignation or anger or malice. All of those things will draw us into our own world. And Jesus asked many to come under him to cast away their personal comforts and baggage that they might come unto him and change their frame of reference. And by physically changing our environments and by re-examining things ourselves, we can often come, brothers and sisters, to the realisation perhaps we might have been unbalanced. And in our own view, when we think about things, we can be selfish. When we try to think from God's perspective, measuring up ourselves against our Lord's own sacrifice, how do we truly stack up when it comes to how much we give and how much we love? Mary got the message, by the way. <laughs> Mary comes quickly, it says. And so Mary rises up. Look what it says. Now, Jesus was not coming to the place, but was in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with him in the house, and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, well, she's going to the grave to weep. She comes out quickly. In fact, she shot out of the house like a rocket, so much so that everyone was left that was mourning with her was taken by surprise. She rose up hastily. In the Greek, it means she rose up without delay. She didn't pause for a moment. This, by the way, is the strength of Martha's character. That even when she was in her own bitterness, all in her own head, the moment the Lord personally calls her, she instantly responds. You see, that's Mary. The words of the Lord and the chance to be at his feet, a personal invitation. And she's there like a flash. And yet I want to show, brothers and sisters, just the way that he works with Mary in her grief. Look what it says. Verse 32, as she sees her Lord, her words come tumbling out. Look what it says, verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if there had been here, my brother had not died. And as she comes to the Lord and as she sees him, her words come gushing out as her emotions flows and she falls at his feet, her tears pooling on the ground as her body is rocked in grief once more. You know, it's remarkable, actually. Here's the difference. You see, when Martha came in verse 21, it says that she said unto Jesus. And in that, in the Greek, it just means to speak or to say or to have a conversation but not with Mary, because when she comes in verse 32, and it says, and she fell at his feet, saying unto him, the word in the Greek means to lay forth a case, to lay forth a case. It means to, to, to relate in a systematic way or to set up a disclosure. See, Martha breaks her silence to converse with the Lord, but Mary wants to lay out her case for why she is so upset. And she's it says exactly the same words as Mary does, as Martha does, but provided in an entirely different manner. One was the request for the Lord's help. The other was to accuse the Lord and lay fault at why she felt so distraught because of her brother's death. You see, here was Mary's challenge. And she gushes forth her words, telling the Lord why she's so upset lost in her own world, as Martha also, by the way, had been in Luke chapter 10. No difference, is it? Here they were in their moment of challenge. And here, Mary reveals why she was lost in her own grief. Do you know the intensity and the feelings of loneliness and despair and helplessness and grief had sunk Mary into a spiraling loop of self-pity and self-centeredness that laid the blame, that made her, sorry, lay the blame at the feet of her Lord for her brother's death. You see, Mary had begun to doubt that her Lord actually loved them and, and therefore had begun to even doubt him. You see, these feelings are dangerous. We must never lose sight 
of verse 5, that Jesus loves all three of them, including the one who died. And if the Lord loved them, well, he also loves us. That love hasn't changed, has it? And never will be, so long as we associate ourselves and become focusing on listening to the Lord's words. But we can fall and fool ourselves as we become fully self-absorbed and full of pride. You know, our God, it says, loves us and his arms are always open and attentive to our cry. And so the Lord, look at how the Lord responds to Mary. Oh, I think this is a good lesson, brothers and sisters. Look at how the Lord responds. Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't do. What he doesn't do is he doesn't provide stern words to tell Mary to snap out of it and to get a grip. That's what he doesn't do to Mary. Tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't lecture her on the need to take a moment and to pull herself together. And he certainly doesn't berate her and lecture on her own selfishness. Instead, he chooses to empathize with her in her grief, understanding the pain and understanding the anguish he knows he had caused, fully realizing what he would do shortly. Instead of lecturing, he grieves with her in empathy. Now it says in verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. You know, it's the Greek words, he was troubled in himself. To groaning means to snort with indignation. The idea of, of being violently vexed in himself. And he's troubled, it says. He's agitated to give an involuntary shudder. And the point, brothers and sisters, of verse 33 is that the sight of the woman weeping so and with Mary's own accusations, understanding the pain he'd caused, Jesus struggles for control of his own emotions. You see, he saw the pain. He saw the anguish he'd caused. He'd seen the emotional challenges laid out in, his, in her case as Mary gave her evidence before him. And he struggles for self-control and eventually breaks, brothers and sisters, in verse 35 when it says that Jesus wept. You know, he, it says, where have you laid him? And they say unto him, Lord, come and see. And he, and he weeps. But, you know, their weeping was different. You see, Mary, Mary's weeping was to sob or to wail out loud. That wasn't the Lord's. The word for weep is the word to cry silently. You see, the Lord shed a quiet personal tear at seeing the ones he so desperately loved hurting quite so much. Perhaps now that adds a flavor of Hebrews chapter 4, doesn't it? We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of when? In time of need. Hebrews 4 verse 15. You see, here's a great lesson for all of us, brothers and sisters, and particularly for Martha's when trying to help Mary's in their hours of challenge. Excuse all the text, but hopefully it's helpful. Given that Mary's are often emotionally charged in times of crisis, attempting to reason whilst they're under immense stress and immense emotional grief might not always be helpful. Rather, lending a shoulder to, uh, to cry on, a safe place to unload, a hand to hold, an embrace to come can often be the best process to help a Mary in their time of need. You see, Marys will often require time to process alone in private and in prayer, particularly with their Lord. But this will come later, after she's laid out her complaint. 
Marys need to lay out their complaint before their father so that they can make their case stated. And so for Martha's, we have to go softly and gently, seeking first to empathise and console, because after this, and this alone, probably provides the greatest comfort rather than to try to reason. That can come in time when a Mary is ready. And there's lessons for Mary, isn't there? You see, if Martha comes, you got to let them in. <laughs> You've got to let them in. You've got to ask for what is needed. Don't shut them out. Martha will keep coming because they sometimes forget. But show them and allow them to show care. And when they start to reason through things, gently remind them that you need time to process, to cry, to state your case before the Lord, and that you're not ready yet. And that's okay. But remember that they are there because they want to help and they want to support. Don't push them away. Just tell them what is needed and show them and tell them that you appreciate their support. And so Mary is taught by the Lord, even as Lazarus emerges from the tomb, brothers and sisters, their hope in the Lord will always be fruitful and to trust because he does know best. Now, if we always remember that, we've always got to seek to understand that all things will work together for good to them that love God, because that's exactly how God works, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And even for Mary in her hour of greatest tragedy and an hour of grief, the Lord is careful to work with her, to show her. And the Lord, whilst groaning and understanding what his own sacrifice will mean and the, the way in which sin will have an impact on the world, and he saw all of that as part of his grief. But above all that, brothers and sisters, he saw he, how he touched his family and saw the challenge and the pain that had been caused. He understood their challenge. He understood their weakness. And he works with them to bring about his father's purpose. And even when it appears, brothers and sisters, that all hope is lost, we must always have faith and confidence that Yahweh is faithful, that he does love us, and he works in us and through us to fulfill his purpose. And by the way, brothers and sisters, Mary learns this remarkable lesson and it drives her from this moment forward in such a way that she serves him in her devotion to him and blew him away in John chapter 12 as she reveals to the Lord the extent of her own faith and of her own love and of her own understanding as she anoints his body to be ready for his burial in advance. Mm -hmm.